Hey guys, Hedda here. If you'd like to skip to the discussion, the timestamp is about 14 minutes in. Otherwise, here's Ella giving us a philosophical background of a concept of the ideal Muslim, which is the topic of our second episode. Remember to check out our Instagram with the same name, where we post updates and creative works related to each episode. And thanks for listening. Salam everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Back from Fajr. In this episode, we will be discussing what the ideal Muslim looks like and how it can be achieved. In order to explore this topic, the episode will progress in the following format. In part one, I will be discussing what the Quran, several hadiths, and Islamic philosophers, actually only Ibn Arabi, have said in regards to how Muslims are expected to conduct themselves in all aspects of life. In the second part, my co-host and I will be joined by a guest, where we'll converse about our relationship with religion and ever-continuous self-reflection. A bit of a disclaimer, we are not scholars. We are just sharing our knowledge and experiences. Now let's get into the episode. This episode idea came about due to various reasons. I believe as Muslims, it is our duty to strive for self-improvement and growth, which directly overlaps with our relationship with religion, Except this is all very easily said more than done. Where do we start? What does the ideal Muslim even look like? Or what I'm really trying to get at here is what is it to be the perfect human being? And is such a thing even attainable? I came across this quote that worded Ibn Arabi's philosophy on an insan al-kamil, the complete or perfect human, quite well, and has stuck with me since. It goes as follows. Coming to self-realization implies that human beings take account of their own haq, right and proper action, and of their haq in relation to others. The perfect human, therefore, assumes responsibility for himself, his actions, and his intuitive connection with God. On that account, to be the perfect human is to behave in a way that is right, and take accountability for the actions we commit in regards to ourselves, others, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That quote is all well and good, but how does one even go about doing that? In preparation for this episode, I read certain sections of Dr. Muhammad Ali Hishami's book, The Ideal Muslim. He divides the Muslim's existence into nine categories, each containing several subsections. For the purpose of this podcast, I will only be focusing on three of those sections, but I do highly recommend reading the rest of the book. The first element I want to focus on is the relationship we all individually have with our Lord. The status of our relationship is stated very explicitly in the Quran, in Surah Al-Dhariyat, Ayah 56. The translation goes as follows. I do not create jinn and humans except to worship me. Attaining this level of awareness of our existence is to be cognizant that every deed we do is an act of worship, and committing those acts with that intention in mind. A part of worship is repentance, which is not only an obligation, but something we should be eager to do and rejoice in the guidance of Allah. To rejoice and ultimately accept the wills and decree of Allah, this does not mean that we do not have free will, but rather we make the effort to do what we can for ourselves. If we encounter a moment of ease, we thank God, and if we undergo struggles, we persist with patience and faith in Allah. The ideal Muslim's main concern is to please his Lord, therefore obeying all commands, even those that we may find inconvenient, because Allah is all-knowing. The second factor is a Muslim and his own self, which I'm going to split into nurturing the physical, which coincides with the inner. Religion and acts of worship are occasionally reduced to something that is quantifiable, like prayer or charity, with no mentioning of how this impacts our internal well-being despite the old cautionary tale of our outsides being a reflection of our insides. Even Umar has stated, a man will not be condemned until he favors his desires over his religion. This brings us back to achieving the ultimate balance between the needs of our body, mind, soul, and even worship. An exaggeration in any of those regards most certainly results in another aspect lacking, Maintaining our outward physical appearance is not something that's vain, but actually an obligation. The Prophet once said to Aisha, When a man goes out to meet his brothers, let him prepare himself properly, for Allah is beautiful and loves beauty. We're not only representing ourselves, but the entire Ummah. And such a simple task is something that God loves. When I get ready, it's never a thought that has crossed my mind. 
But I suppose this is another instance in which acts of worship exist in minuscule tasks. All that needs to be renewed is our intentions. Okay, let's move a bit inwards to the mind. The hadith that I mentioned in the previous episode about seeking knowledge is not one that can just be stated once, since the pursuit of knowledge is one of the core aspects of Islam. I think the way the education system is framed makes it difficult for us to gain knowledge outside of our careers. Not because it isn't attainable, though, but the joy in learning is easily diminished when the entire process is reduced to numerical values. Of course, it is our duty to be proficient in whatever our specialty is, but my emphasis is on exposing ourselves to information in all other fields. We take the former to be our duty, while the latter is just something that's additional, when both are of importance, not only the knowledge that is of monetary value. How can we intentionally halt this journey of pursuing knowledge when we have yet to learn what will benefit us the most? Finally, the last facet that brings us to our aspect of worship that goes beyond us, the Muslim and his friends and brothers in Islam. Now, friendships and the other relationships we develop and maintain throughout our lives, everyone has a particular way of approaching them. But the viewpoint that I absolutely cannot justify and I just don't understand at all is the one that prioritizes our worldly ventures and even worship over our own brothers and sisters. This might sound a bit weird given the context, but hustle culture has infiltrated our social media spaces, encouraging not maintaining ties or only if it is of monetary benefit. Capitalistic societies emphasize work, quote-unquote, productivity, and competition, inducing isolation, alienation, and spiritual emptiness. This outlook bleeds into how worship is approached praising individuals who isolate themselves in the name of worship, but this excessiveness leads to neglect in other regards. Abdullah ibn Ham ibn al-As reported what the Prophet voiced in response to exaggeration and worship. He declared, Your body has a right over you, your eyes have a right over you, your wife has a right over you, and your visitors have a right over you. That attitude, the one I had previously mentioned, is the direct antithesis of Islam, where the foundation lies in brotherhood. Camaraderie is an aspect that I deeply value, and it's a characteristic of Islam that I relish in, for us to love one another for the sake of Allah. Such a simple act will lead to the individual being shaded on the day of judgment. Except, I'm aware that loving someone for the sake of Allah is a very heavy statement to make, and honestly, I'm not too sure how yet to attain that. The Qur'an describes this love in Surah Al-Hujurat, Ayah 10. The translation goes as follows. A love untainted by any worldly interests or ulterior motives. So, loving someone not for the sake of anything else in this life. Something unmotivated by our desires and interests, which is of course easier said than done. But it's a process which I think coexists with our relationships. It is through true brotherhood that we eliminate emotions of jealousy and hatred that trickle into our bonds with others. Throughout this episode, I have listed particular characteristics that should be cultivated in order to become the ideal Muslim. You might have noticed these behaviors I'm describing are rooted in God's names, Al-Ghaffar, the all and all-forgiving, Al-Rahman, the most or entirely merciful, Al-Wudud, the most loving. This brings me to Ibn Arabi's theory. Wahdat al-wujud, the unity of being. When I first heard this theory, I was captivated by it, to be honest. Confused, but captivated. And it's slowly making its way into my internal philosophy. The premise of the unity of being arises from the Islamic principle of Tawheed. There is no God but God. La ilaha illallah. Ibn Arabi draws on Ayah 115 in Surah Al-Baqarah as proof. The translation goes as follows. Wherever you turn, there is the face of God. Now, I've been thinking about how best to communicate this theory without dragging all of you down this rabbit hole with me. And the best I could come up with is that everything... Well, not me. I don't think I came up with it. I think I listened. I read something else. But but the best I could come up with is that everything is and simultaneously isn't God. 
Ibn Arabi has this phrase, huwa la huwa, he and not he. Ibn Arabi uses a metaphor to explain God's relationship with the world. He describes God as a pure white light that travels through a prism to then create a multitude of colors, which is us, the world. The colors are not equivalent to the white light. Similarly, we are not equivalent to God, but we do not consist of anything except for the white light, God. Before I come to a stop about this theory, I'd just like to emphasize the unity of being isn't claiming, for instance, that you are God, but we manifest as aspects of him. We are not the sky, but rather like the sky. On that same note, Ibn Arabi believes humans were created out of all of Allah's divine names, but it is up to the individual to cultivate those characteristics within us during the process of knowing ourselves. That is truly when we know God. Also, if you'd like a starting point to Ibn Harabi, I highly, highly suggest the YouTube channel Let's Talk Religion, specifically the video Ibn Arabi and the Unity of Being. So we're almost done with this part of the episode, but I just want to revisit one of the questions I asked at the start of this episode. Is becoming the perfect human being even something that is attainable? While researching for this episode, I had debated with myself over whether the answer was yes or no to that question. Because I think intuitively we are inclined to answer no to this question. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody is perfect. Um, it's cringe to say out loud, but it is a common phrase. Supposedly a comforting one. However, perhaps unintentionally, I think it has further propelled the notion that perfection cannot coexist with mishaps. To experience one nullifies the other which pretty clearly contradicts our existence. Except, I think the perfect human, or my version of it at least, takes into account the blunders that we encounter while living. But, it is how we respond to them that enhances our intuitive connection to God and aids us in becoming the perfect human. I'm going to sidetrack for a bit, but this will take us back to the main point. I was having a conversation with Hala, my co-host, and usually I pick her up and drive her around to all these locations I want to go to. So we're spending a lot of time in transit. During that time period, we drill through a lot of conversations. As one does. <laughs> but this one particular instance, we were shooting questions back and forth at each other. One of the questions I had asked her was how she felt about regret. Which sounds, you know what, it sounds pretty pseudo-deep when I say it now. But <laughs> it gets the point across. So I asked her how she felt about regret, not if she regretted anything, but her attitude towards experiencing that emotion. We can dwell on the details of that conversation in a later episode, but what I want to focus on is a phrase she said. Somebody once told her to put as much distance between you and the old you, which to me at first appeared to be good advice, but it's deceiving. At a closer glance, it's almost preventing self-growth and improvement because it's denouncing your past self. But that past version of you, and all her flaws, is still you. Just a version of you. Maybe you didn't do the best that you could. Or perhaps you did, with the knowledge you had at that time. But it is what you choose to do with this version of yourself that manifests you as the perfect human. So yes, to become the perfect human being is attainable. I am most certainly not there yet but I will do the best that I can to achieve it, to cultivate myself, my relationship with others, and Allah. And that brings us to our topic, the ideal Muslim. Um, and we were going to talk about our experiences because we've all both lived in the West and an Arab country. And so we were going to talk about the differences between our ideals of being um, a perfect Muslim in both settings or how we try to like our attitudes towards that we're joined today by a guest from high school he's our friend uh Abdul Qadir. do you want to do you want to give an introduction you can talk about okay. yourself a bit okay my name is Abdul Qadir Fiqi and I'm a student that studies here in Canada I went to high school with I guess the show's I don't know, podcast hosts, and I guess I'm just here to share my experiences of being a Muslim in 
the difference between Dubai and Toronto, I guess. I don't know. Toronto. Okay, you'll find out throughout the episode. Okay, what do you think is the ideal Muslim? And how much of a responsibility do you feel about achieving that? Well, um, to me, the ideal Muslim is someone who continuously tries to improve and, like, better himself. And it's not about, you know, I don't think about it as the logic of, oh, you read the Quran every day and you make sure you, I don't know, put extra du'as in your prayers and you're, you're longer in this wujud or whatever. But, you know, everyone everyone starts from somewhere. And for me, it's continuously trying to improve on it and essentially having that fear of, you know, like having morals and that fear of like Allah is watching me and I don't want to mess up even though I could hide it or I even though I could get away with something that I do not want to disappoint you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's essentially what I like as long as you're aware of that to me that's not that's a path of being you know quote-unquote a perfect Muslim wait so how do you improve like what steps come to mind when you think of improvement like is it just being hyper aware because I think like for every Muslim they are aware of God, like to a certain degree. I don't know if it's, but the degree to which we're aware of it and how, and like the consistency to which we're aware of it differs. So is improving yeah. in, increasing that time or like increasing that awareness or what is it? It's like, I think it was talking about taqwa. Like when you know that God is always watching you, you wouldn't want to, like if you have, that awareness like rooted in everything that you're doing and your niya is always like your intention is always to not like support god or be do things that are good then i think that's that's what he was trying to get at like, yeah but like um i could speak about it from like my own perspective because yeah. i feel like that would just be easier to explain yeah yeah and so basically like, from when I was younger, from since I was 12 years old or why not, my mom always wanted me to always, like, finish the Qur'an and, and like, le- memorize the whole Qur'an, get my shahada in it. And, you know, that was, like, a big part of, like, my mom's motivation for me, at least, like, me and my brother. And, you know, when you when you read the Qur'an and, and you're memorizing the Qur'an at my age, at least, and you're putting it, uh, like, on a time limit and a time, like, constraint, it's, you kind of, kind of like skim over the meaning of the like and the tafsir of what the Quran is saying. So to me, like I understood, like I knew I knew the right stuff to say, you know, like I understood why I'm reading the Quran. I understood why I'm, you know, why I'm memorizing this. I understood all the hadith, all the the stories of the prophets and whatnot. But I did not have that like, you know, that taqwa in me that to be to be aware of what I'm doing. Like, I would just read the Quran and then the next day I would just, you know, do random stuff with my friends that was completely, you know, out of character with, you know, what I'm learning <laughs> and how I'm being a Muslim. Yeah. Because, you know, generally people that are finished the Quran and whatnot and got their ijadah, that's what they call the shahadah, they call the ijadah, and, you know, they don't, they're kind of, you know, on the path of, like, to being imams or whatnot, especially, like, people my age. But, like, as you grow more older, you realize to have, I guess, more, you take your time with your prayers, you have, like, more khushua than what you're doing, and, like, for example, like, 10th grade, for example, I wouldn't even pray properly, you know, it's, it was, it was just like an act of, uh, my mom's forcing me to pray, even though I knew the Quran, and even though I knew, like, what the Quran meant, and the importance of praying, it wasn't, like, a priority for me, like, I did not have that fear of I don't want to like disappoint Allah you know I was just doing it for the sake of my mom telling me to do it so it's just like it just takes time you know it takes time to be on that path of improvement and when you read the Quran and you actually understand the deeper meaning behind it and the underlying themes and what's common and what's not and what like what you think is perfect or what you don't think is perfect within the context of like yourself you you're you're like you're on the path to you're, you're on the path of improvement because as long as you keep telling yourself, like, oh, I'm doing this for the sake of Allah and for the sake of me believing that Allah has the best solution for me, that will always, like, what I believe is that will always put you on the path of improvement. 
Yeah, so doing it out of like like self-initiative rather than yeah. obligation to your mom basically or yeah. to your parents. Do you no, think, it's not, like it's yeah. not just like my parents. I would say it's more like Society. like when you have troubles, you don't kind of sorrow in your own like, "Oh, I don't know why this is not happening. I don't know why this is yeah. why this is not like being achieved for me." Like I it's it's kind of a difficult process. It's better it's easier said than done, obviously. Mm-hmm. But all you all you can control is your effort. And I'm starting to come to like re- that realization that as long as I put in the effort, all I have to do is put like put and wait the results on like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, yeah. so Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like a difficult transition because you always want to have control of what you like you do. But, you know, sometimes it's about also about accepting, like, sometimes stuff doesn't turn out the way that you want it to always be. Mm-hmm. And expressing that, like, that gratitude for Allah, like, and you have to, like, physically understand. I don't know how to explain it other than, like, the example of, it's like an intuition, which, which will almost, like, you just realize it instantly. And like you iman. realize it instantly through just, yeah, that iman, like, it's, a, it's an iman that comes to you, just, it doesn't come overnight. But it's something that you have to always like work towards for. So that's why I don't like when people just like, oh, you're like you're like half of the Quran. So why are you not doing this, or why do you do this, or why do yeah. you not do this? It's yeah. like it's it gets a bit frustrating for me <laughs> because I'm like I eventually want to reach there. Yeah. But it's about taking the necessary steps for me to to reach it. I can't just do it overnight. I can't they, just block out all this stuff overnight. Yeah, they don't even know also, like, oh sorry, like his like your level of spirituality for them to comment like. It's just a physical yeah. measure. Like, you just know half of it, but they don't yeah. see what's in your heart or what your beliefs are. Anyway, yeah, yeah. just reducing your your religiosity to, like, this single act. <laughs> the same word. Yeah. It always comes back to... Yeah. Because I feel like that's what... Like, that's where the Muslim community goes wrong. Because I guess mm. you can't ever know... Like, you... Like, us, like, other living Muslims, you can't ever... Like, I guess we can only determine based on other people's, like, physical actions. I guess that's why we keep going back to, like, physical worship, like, people's prayer and fast. Because all of that is important, but it just gets, like, messy or I feel like it causes, like, a negative relationship with religion. Like, it even stunts your own personal growth if you just boil down your relationship with religion to just those physical acts instead of something that's like like intuitive like i'm doing this because i want to not just going through the motions but also i wanted to ask like do you guys think you because you both moved to canada alone like you were living you were living with your brothers at the but you weren't living with your parents like do you think you you guys doing that shift from living under your parents house to not do you think that, like, how do you think that impacted your perception of Islam or your relationship with Islam, actually? If it had any impact at all? Um, I'd say at the start it was a bit difficult because, you know, you're, you're put in an environment that, that you're not accustomed to. But in the sense of, like, Islam, it was... Like, I have full... Like, I'm... Unfortunately, I'm very close with, like, with my brothers and with my other family members, my cousins, my uncles, and my aunts, and whatnot. So, I wouldn't say it was a bit awkward, and but it was just awkward in the sense of, you know, in Dubai, you have, you can pray anywhere. You have you have yeah. mosques everywhere. You have mosques at the mall. You have mosques, you know, at schools. You just park it's, your, it's your car to the everywhere. side of the road. It's literally there, bro. Like, yeah. <laughs> but then, when you come move to Canada, you have to constantly remind yourself that you have to pray because it's very easy no to kind of forget. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's no event. And there's not a lot of places to pray. Yeah, but the prayer rooms are so dingy on campus. Like, there's <laughs> yeah. one, the one on my campus, like, the single one, it's, like, so, like, I swear that building's gonna fall down someday. Like, the, you're doing wudu, <laughs> and it's so musty. And I swear, I was doing wudu one time, and there was a spider right next to I was like, Girl. I was like, God, don't test me like this. <laughs> it's a test, bro. <laughs> But anyway, anyway, yeah, continue. <laughs> I know I have. I actually experienced the same thing. I think they closed down the mosque across from one of my schools because of like the safety, the health and safety hazards that I had. Oh my god! 
Like, it was, the stairs were so unhygienic. Like, it was so dirty. So, like, the difference between how they keep, you know, they care about Muslims. Like, I mean, I guess it's not their fault. They don't have the necessary funds to yeah. continuously, you know, renovate it and take care of it. Because, like, there was only one guy working there. And, like, he just has to take care of the whole building by himself. And, obviously, he has a different job. But, yeah, it's it's a bit difficult because you might be at one place at one time. And, you know, you're like, am I really going to walk 25 minutes? <laughs> or should I just go home and pray there? Like, you keep asking yourself these questions. So, it kind of tests you. you but, I guess, I, th- I think that's the real yeah. test. That's the real, like, difference between here, at least in Dubai and in Toronto. Do you ever just go into an empty classroom and pray? Have you done that? I actually started doing that in the second semester. I just packed my own. Um, what do you call it? I can't believe you the name. <laughs> and prayer rug. Yeah, prayer rug. Sorry. And <laughs> and I can't believe you forgot it. Wow. Um, and then I would just, you know, pray at random classes, tutorial halls. Like, anywhere where I could just find it empty. But the anxiety of someone coming in is just kind of distracting. Oh, my God. Bro. Anytime I hear just someone walking up the stairs, for example, because it's next to the toy hall, I'm like, I'm just praying, and I'm like, just don't come to this room. <laughs> <laughs> but, what about you, yeah. Hannah? Mm-hmm. Wait, Wait um, by the way, um, I, like, MSA was actually, like, kind enough to, because there are some like multi-faith rooms or um, like just abandoned closets and people were like kind enough to there's like a list so whenever <laughs> I actually like plan my day around like if I'm going to be in these buildings today then the closest part is like 10 minutes away and I can just walk quickly before my other class so I would I would try to plan my day around that because when I would have like three consecutive lectures um, I'm missing like, and and the days were so short. I'm missing like three prayers, like Dohr, um, Asr, and Maghrib, and it yeah, was winter, like, right? I swear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like an hour, and then Maghrib, and Dohr comes, and then it was just kind of crazy. So I would um, go to the multi faith room the most, and it's also mostly used like Muslim students uh, with the occasional like yoga class there or something. Um, <laughs> but there's mostly prayer rugs there, so like. I would go there if it wasn't too far. But yeah, alhamdulillah, I found that list. I wasn't aware of it. So I searched it up. So, (laughs) yeah. You should, you guys should um, join MSA or something. Because I think, I think uh, the students themselves are the ones who try to set up as many care rooms as possible. So maybe like searching it up or um, trying to ask for it would probably be helpful. And you get has also, I wanted to talk about something that you said before, Abu Qadr. You said, yeah. um, like, when we were, when you were talking about Kokwa, you were like, and I, I, maybe you didn't mean it that way, but uh, you were like, that constant fear um, that Allah is watching me, or something like that. Well, you mentioned the word fear, and most people, like, when, they, when they're taught about religion, um, they're taught about Allah through his name of, like, Al-Waqib. The, the constant watcher and yeah. that, that's like like fear fear not in the sense that you'll disappoint god like it's it's like fear that um that you'll be caught doing something it's yeah. not like disappointing someone that you love um but because they have that constant fear or it's ingrained into them by their parents I feel like it's hard for them to like grasp parts of the religion or even like get into um, doing like intentional spirituality because of the aggressive way that they've been taught about it. So, what do you guys think about people brought up like that? Um, I didn't. I didn't mean it in terms of yeah. You're right. I didn't yeah, mean it in I know. Terms of like the fear of you know constantly supporting Allah, but like I yeah. meant to because I, I I make mistakes every day and so do most Muslims. Mm-hmm. It's just that, like, you should you should be wary of doing stuff that you know you should not be doing. Like, if it's something like, you know, something quite obvious. But I like to think of, you know, the religion of Islam as, you know, one that's at least 
it's it's easy to practice. It's fulfilling and it's it's fruitful towards you know just outside of even the scope of your relation, like outside of the scope of religion. It's fruitful to your your relationships, how you conduct yourself, you know, in work, in social circumstances, your morals, and like your social awareness. Yeah. So I just wanted to like clear that up. Yeah, I think. Like, I only started recently thinking of it like this, but, you know, like, I forgot the word that you just said, but, like, Allah being, like, the Uh, all-knowing. Yeah, and, like, the watcher, basically. Mm -hmm. I only recently started to think of it in a positive way, because, like, I never had it, like, my parents never, like, they never really said it like that, like, don't do this because God is watching. By, um, like, I just started thinking about, like, whenever I'm, like, sad or going through any kind of struggle or I don't know what what's to come for future me, I do start thinking about it, like, oh, well, like, God is watching me right now. Like, he's watching over me. Like, he's going to protect yeah. me. So I have nothing to, like, be be worried about or, like, he, he knows me. He knows my intentions. Even if, like, of course I make mistakes, of course, like, sometimes I'm lacking, but he, but he knows what I'm trying to do, so what, what do I have fear for? So it does, it does calm me down, like, it does ease my, um, worries a bit. I don't think, but like you were saying, like, the watcher, like, God being the watcher isn't usually taught like that. It's usually taught, like, you shouldn't, like, you should be afraid of him or fear him. I'm even do like cautious to say that we should fear Allah. Like I know we should, but you know how they always say like you want you want like in a spouse you want someone to, like a God fearing man or you want a God fearing woman. Like I don't know how I feel about that either because why, why is the ideal Muslim or the perfect Muslim someone who fears God instead of someone like oh I want someone who like I want someone who loves God as much as. I love God. Like, why does it? Why does it still always come back to fear? Because, of, like, I do think there should be, like, fear is part of the relationship, but I don't think that should be the core aspect. I think um, so. what they mean by like a God-fearing spouse is someone who has taqwa. Like, I don't know how you would translate that. Like, taqwa is just like um, being being mindful that God is watching you. But doesn't that also come with love? Yeah, obviously. But, um, like, I guess the con- the semantics of it. <laughs> yeah, but it like, it, like, I feel like it perpetuates that the relationship that we should have with God should be because we don't want to, like, disappoint him or upset him. But you also want to do the same with someone you love. Like, you don't want to disappoint or upset them. It doesn't have, but I know it's just yeah. a single word that I'm, like, focusing on. But it does, no, no, it's like, but it does shape the relationship that you have with God personally. You know, That's it also comes it. up in the Quran, like Khashatullah uh, is fearing God, and God says that like Al Mu'minin are ones who like have Khashatullah, and I don't think um, fear here is used in like this the standard way that we usually connote it. Which is just like what I was talking about before. Someone's watching you. I can't. Um, it's more like restrictive, but that you're gonna, that you're doing something wrong and you're gonna get caught. But fear of God is just um, being mindful that I guess He sent you here for a purpose, and you're trying to fulfill that by being mindful of um, like your actions or um, how you carry yourself and so on. So, yeah, I, I agree that the general use of it isn't, um, and how, like, it's used to force people into, like, abstinence and uh, not doing bad things. But I don't think that's really effective, as you said. Yeah. Any comments <laughs> on that? Um, I mean, I agree on that level. I was actually talking to my brother about this the other day, because um, we had, like, a, we had a family member. Um, who was who was who was kind of sick with COVID and my are they okay? Yeah, yeah, they they're okay, but you know they're just kind of struggling with yeah, I guess the aftermath of COVID. But and 
you know, my mom was talking, not my mom, sorry, my aunt was talking to my brother, you know, telling him, oh, you should, you should visit this, you should visit, you know, her kids, you know, they're your cousins because, or like, you know, help them out, get what, get them what they need. And because that's what I guess, I guess, Silat Rahim is. And, and I guess my brother brought up this argument that, you know, you shouldn't be doing this because, oh, this is what Allah would want me to do. It should be coming from you, like from your heart, you know, the goodness should be coming from something that you want to do. Not because, oh, this is what, I guess this is the definition of Salat al-Rahim, so I should be doing this to get hasanat. I mean, and it, it was, I mean, it wasn't because, I'm not saying this because, um, yeah. oh, we should not be helping out our cousins right now. <laughs> I don't mean it like that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I meant it in the sense of, do you like help out someone because this is, this is something that will get you hasanat in the future? Do you think about it like that or do you think about it in the sense of, I should be doing this because it's the right thing to do? But why is that a bad thing, though? Because if if God wants you to do something, then it's the right thing to do. And simultaneously, like, maybe maybe you're not really, like, maybe you don't really want to go visit your cousins. But because God told you Sultan Rahim is really important, um, you'll do it because that's the right thing to do. You get um, even more hasanat because you changed your niya. So you're doing So you're doing the thing for God now. For God's sake, like it's obviously for their sake yeah. as well. I don't think um, it's like mutually excuse exclusive, like doing yeah. the right thing and doing something for God's sake. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think, I think they go hand in hand. Yeah, I guess I agree because like there's because there's some people that are obviously not Muslim, but they try to do the right stuff, you know. And I can I just think about like that was just in, that was just something that like stayed in my mind. I mean, I guess if you're wondering, yeah, we did help out our cousins, by the way. We're not evil. <laughs> but, <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, I, I just wanted to click, because the way I kind of phrased the sentence yeah. made me look like we did it. <laughs> but, Damn. I think... I don't know, it's just I, a bit interesting. Yeah. Sorry. I, mm-hmm. I agree with Hala and that, like, they're not <laughs> separate things. Like, they coexist. But I also do agree with your brother's phrasing a bit. Like, because sometimes when you do phrase like that, it's like we're going against our will and it's like, ugh, like, okay, fine, I'll just do it for God, you know, like, because this yeah. is what God wants me to do. But I think when we have to like revisit it, I guess, like, especially when it comes to our relationships with others, like, that is like brotherhood, whatever, like sisterhood, like, that's the foundation of Islam. So obviously we're, we're in situations where we don't want to do something for someone like i think it's just human nature like you know always yeah. that empathetic and that giving but yeah. i think reminding yourself that you are doing it for god so inadvertently you're also doing it for that other person because they they're like they're they're like in they're like a part of you islamically even if they're not muslim like like just the fact that they're human they're like an extension of yourself or like I don't want to get into Ibn Arabi that much but like, yeah I, I was thinking about that <laughs> like Ibn Arabi I mentioned it a bit in the episode <laughs> where he believes like there's there's the concept of like the unity of being so everyone is and simultaneously isn't God basically so we all so we manifest as we can manifest as his divine names but we're not we're not God is what I'm saying, but we do like in that way we're all like connected almost. So if you wanna think of it like that, then helping helping a sibling or helping whoever is helping God. <laughs> oh my god, I, I don't mean, know how to explain that. I think I think it generally makes sense. Like that you um like that were like created to cultivate certain characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like but obviously not to his degree because like he's the absolute manifestation of those characteristics, but like we do get hasanat when we try to um, be like that. Or like bring out those char- like, like bring out yeah. those characteristics in somebody else and like inadvertently helps you as well while you're yeah. 
it's like a what's the, what's the relation like it's like give and take symbiosis yeah symbiosis actually uh, but there's also that um i remember when i was reading the book of the ideal muslim i was so shook that you that i was like surprised that you mentioned it and what called about the deeds because i remember taking a note because basically in the book that i was reading a lot of the sahaba like there are a lot of there's so many hadiths of the sahaba basically like they were doing things because like explicitly for the reason that oh, this would get me good deeds like this would um like i'm doing this oh i and i know god is pleased with me when i do this so i'm gonna get good deeds like they were like hyper aware of that and i was i guess not like taken back but i was um i guess it provided like a different perspective because i never ever think of my life or the actions i do in my life as deeds i just like i've only honestly i've only recently started being aware of my actions in a way that I wanted to live a life that's pleasing to God. And even then, I'm not, like, aware of it continuously. So I guess I kind of admired that aspect because that means you're so conscious of every action that you do. that you're also aware of how God, or as much as we know, like, of how God is perceiving you. Like how you would be rewarded or like Yeah, which is which is interesting. Like I'm not there yet, obviously, but yeah. I, I found that you know, it kinda reminds me I mean, uh, this is probably a bad analogy, but you know in Mario when you collect <laughs> coins? Yeah. Like I actually visualize that every time like I want to do some like I uh want to do something or I don't want to do something but I know it'll be good. Um like, it'll get me some hazanet, because everyone needs hazanet, obviously. So I just imagine um, collecting all the coins in a sequence. Yeah, I get what you mean. So basically, with everything that we've said so far, do you think... Because I do believe that becoming the perfect human or the ideal Muslim is attainable. Like, it is possible. But I was just thinking about this yesterday. Even though it is possible, I don't think... Like, do you guys think we would ever be aware once we've reached our level of the ideal Muslim? Or once we've become the ideal Muslim, do you think we'd, we'd be aware of that? We never know. Because my... I guess my own perception of it isn't, isn't to become the ideal Muslim because... Or... The way you the way you phrased it is that making making mistakes makes up the ideal Muslim. But for me, yeah. um, on a small level, trying to do better than I was like yesterday or than I was at a period um, like in the past, just having the intention to always do better, I think that's what makes up a good Muslim because uh, you know that story of like. There was this, um, I think, woman. I don't know if it was a woman, but um, she, like, didn't, like, do a lot of good, like, I think, kafir or something. There was a kafir or a woman, and they were, like, doing really bad deeds their whole life, and then they um, gave water to a kitten, and then they died, and then they went to heaven. So I feel like, for me... um, it's obviously an, an accumulation, like, you can't just keep doing um, bad things and then suddenly, like, you can't just do bad things and then say later, oh, I'm going to get more spiritual when I'm older and stuff like that. But that story for me represents, like, any turning point, like, God is just waiting for you to have that turning point. He's always, like, telling you to come to him and repent and everything, so... That, I guess, motivates me to do better and not get so hung up on, like, any mistakes because we all do make mistakes. But if you're sincere, then um, I think it'll pay off in the end. What about you? Or first, actually, do you even think the ideal Muslim is... Like, do you think you can ever become the ideal Muslim? I don't. No, I don't. I don't think about. I don't think about it. Like I don't think you can, because if you try to become the ideal Muslim, you're trying to con. 
to me, you're trying to constantly try to be, you know, you're constantly trying to become a better version of yourself. And, and being the ideal Muslim means, if you recognize that, it means that you recognize that you have no flaws, that you're perfect in every sense. And I think Islam is more about having, finding the, your, your purpose in this world and, you know, continuing to deliver on that purpose. So if, let's say, in your head, you reach that, I, you know, that ideal version of yourself, that means you're basically telling God that you, your journey here is finished, you know, and yeah. that your purpose is done. So I, I just, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that the ideal Muslim is attainable or achieved. Would you guys um, consider the prophets to be ideal Muslims? Because if so, then that changes our definition of what an ideal Muslim is. Because um, all the prophets obviously um, went through like the toughest trials that any human could ever go through. Yeah. And that's why they're really like valued by um, Allah Subhanahu wa And so, even then. Um, they kept going until the end. Like, they didn't just stop, as you said. They didn't just yeah. say, oh, um, I converted my home, my village, yeah. my people. I'm done here. That's that's the end of my um, like trial. Look, you don't just get to decide when your test ends. You have to just keep doing better, I guess. Or try to do better. The trying is the important part. Yeah, I, I, I agree because the closest, you know, we try to emulate what Prophet Muhammad be upon him, you know, he does on a day-to-day basis. And so he, I, I would say that he's the, like, the closest version to the ideal Muslim. But even then, like on what you said, it's not like he perceived himself to be the ideal Muslim. He was yeah. just, you know, trying to increase the message of Islam always trying to you know the shining light for his people and and you know stop the injustices that are happening in his in his home or you know Quraysh, yeah. whatever and you would even like constantly like repent even though yeah he, he obviously like most of, i don't know if this is actually true if the prophets don't um like they don't have any bad deeds I can't remember if that's actually true, uh, but like they just, they don't, even the prophets themselves, the chosen like people, they don't have that security that you're going to, um, like, that you're okay right now and you can just stop. Yeah. So I guess that that's the point I was making. I, I think there are like two things, like, I think like obviously the prophets are the ideal Muslim. But they're the ideal Muslim for other Muslims to emulate, like emulate their behaviors. But I think each individual, like each follower of, follower of Islam, has their own um, level that they can attain to become their version of the ideal Muslim. So I think it's so I think it differs. So I think those are two distinct things. But the other thing is that I don't think. I think everyone can become the perfect human or the ideal Muslim, but I think it um, would conflict if that ideal Muslim or like one of us once is aware that they're the ideal Muslim. Like, I don't think that I don't think those two things can coexist. I don't think you can be the ideal Muslim and simultaneously know that you are the ideal, like the ideal version of yourself. Like, I don't think those two thoughts can coexist because how would you like if you following what what i think the perfect human is or that person is like continuously self-reflecting and growing and um trying to like repenting to god and trying to um take accountability of themselves and their relationships with others that i don't think that can be done while also thinking you're you've already reach that point or i don't know actually but at the moment i don't think those two thoughts can coexist like, um, having the security that you're the ideal yeah 
and while being the I- like the ideal Muslim. Because I think a part of a part of being the ideal Muslim is repentance. But you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't repent like it's I feel like it's like a par- I feel like it's paradoxical paradox. But you wouldn't like you wouldn't repent if you also thought you were you were the perfect human or the perfect version of yourself. Because I guess I guess, I like guess to, sorry in that sorry like it reminds me of like Creon in uh, Antigone like hubris mm. like you're you're perfect like what's the use it's like it's like I think um, the Shaitan himself mm. it kind of mimics that I feel I feel like when we say um, ideal it just connotes that there's that you don't have any flaws or you don't do bad deeds. But what if you define the ideal to be someone who has flaws? Like the perfect the perfect human and the ideal, like they are someone who who is flawed, but it's how they respond. I'm a, like in my opinion, it's how they respond yeah, to that. It's true. But I don't like yeah, I don't think you would ever be self aware once you've reached your your epi- your epitome, your like the height yeah. of your perfection. I don't think you don't ever be aware where, of that. Where your where that height is. Yeah. That concludes our second episode about the ideal Muslim or what we think the ideal Muslim looks like. I hope you guys got something out of it. Um, and out of what the guests said as well. <laughs> Do you have no, any concluding I don't have thoughts? any concluding thoughts. <laughs> But no, um, I mean, like, what what should I even say? What should, what should we That's how was this experience? Or do you think you've gained? Or do you think it's changed your perspective anyway? I don't need to include like, this, but you're in talking about it. But I do actually want to know. Do you think it's shaped anything? Your perspective? Or I mean, no. I like the answer is no. It's I guess I did learn something new <laughs> about the whole idea of. Um, I, I never asked myself the question of if you could attain yourself to be the perfect Muslim. So, I guess I'm just happy to come to the conclusion that that is not something that's possible. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I guess the perfect is. Muslim is the person that... To, to him, he doesn't think so, though. I guess... I, I no, I mean, like, the perfect Muslim is the person perfect. that knows that he's not the perfect Muslim. <laughs> kind of, kind of, yeah, basically, kind of. <laughs> With how we're yeah. going about it, yeah. About it. With how we're going yeah, about it, yeah. <laughs> That's an important point that I learned today. So. Thank you for that. Episode two is done. See you guys in the next oh. one. Bye. Salam. Bye. No one else wants to. No one else wants to say bye. Okay. Salam. Okay. See you in the next one. Salam. Salam. Bye.